morning. As some of you know, uh, when I was an undergraduate, I studied philosophy and I really enjoyed it. The other week, I got a phone call from a cousin of mine. She's a sophomore at Miami of Ohio. And she said, Timmy, I need some help on my philosophy paper. Um, and I said, okay, sure, I can help you. And she, she, she nailed it. She got an A, I found out later, because she's very bright. Uh, but what I said was, Gwen, listen, your first two years of studying philosophy is mostly just faking it. You're going to hear all these technical philosophical terms, and you're just going to pretend that you know what you're talking about. And the giant secret in the room is that's what everybody's doing. Let's, let me just tell you a secret. No one knows what Hegel said. I don't think Hegel knows what Hegel said. I think he just started writing and expected everyone to make it so opaque that everyone said, oh, that's profound. It's not profound. It's nonsense. Everybody's just faking that they understand what he is saying, and nobody does. And you know, here's another phenomenon I've experienced. That often happens in the church with technical theological terms. Maybe you're in a Bible study, and someone talks about penal substitutionary atonement, and you say, yep, definitely. And then you sneak your phone out of your pocket and Google, what is penal substitutionary atonement? Don't trust Google on those kinds of things, by the way, okay? Uh, please don't. Email me instead. Uh, or you might hear me talk about the processions of the Trinity or the difference between archetypal and ectypal knowledge. All of these kinds of things make you feel this sense of guilt because you think, well, I should know what all that stuff means, and I don't. And guess what? Most nobody does either, okay? But here's one that you might face. In Romans 1.17, you see these words, the righteousness of God. And you think, I know that means something important. If there ever was an important phrase in the Holy Scriptures, it's right here. Whenever Pastor Tim uses it, he talks about it in a, you know, that other kind of voice, right? When he gets his theological voice out, his pastor voice out. I know that's a word I should know means something, but I'm not entirely sure I really know what it means. And to be honest, you're in good company. There's probably no more debated phrase in the book of Romans or in the entire scripture than dikaiosune theu, the righteousness of God. But we also know that Paul seems to think it's really important. In fact, the entire book of Romans seems to hinge on these words. Our interpretation of what Paul is trying to say will either will go in multiple different directions depending on how we interpret them. The Protestant Reformation would not have happened unless Martin Luther had returned to St. Augustine on what these words meant. But again, we find ourselves confused. What exactly is the righteousness of God? And so today I'm going to do something I almost never do. We're going to look at Romans 16 and 17, but we're just going to look at these two words. Next week, we're going to look more at just 16 and 17 as an exegetical sermon. But today, I just want to look at these important words and what they mean and how they reveal the power of the gospel for salvation to us. And I want to talk about how they reveal two key things, two key images of God's saving activity in the gospel to us. First, the righteousness of God reveals that God has not forgotten his promises to us. 
he remembers you. And second, the righteousness of God reveals that you are justified in Christ Jesus. And then I also want to look at, we hear that word justified and we think, that's all legal terms. How is that actually good news? And I want to talk about how that's actually truly good news for us. But both of them reveal the activity, action of God to remember us and to justify us. So if you would, turn with me to Romans 1, 16 through 17. And if you're visiting today, we have baptisms, we have a lot of visitors, welcome. Uh, We are preaching through the book of Romans, and I said I wasn't going to pull like a Martin Lloyd-Jones and like take eight years, but we're on track to take about three. So (laughs) let's, uh, let's get into it. This is Paul. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, for in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we need to remember something. The Apostle Paul was an expert on the Old Testament. We often miss this reality. Whenever Paul brings up a theological category or a theological word, he's not just plucking it out of thin air. Almost always, there is an Old Testament rooting and grounding that he is building upon. So we should first ask the question, what is the righteousness of God in the Old Testament? Now, whenever we talk about righteousness in the Old Testament, almost always it is situated in the context of a covenant between God and his people. To be righteous, if you were a righteous Jew, meant to be what? A covenant keeper. The covenant that God gave to Abraham, the covenant that God gave to Moses, the covenant that God gave to Abraham, to be declared righteous means you honor the stipulations of the covenant. Therefore, when Jesus is talking about being more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, what is he talking about? He's talking about obeying the Mosaic law. To be a covenant keeper meant you were righteous. But we almost always think about it in terms of our relationship to God. I am declared righteous if I keep the covenant, if I obey God's law. But you have to remember, a covenant is a two-way agreement. God also covenants with his people. And the fundamental covenant that he has is with Abraham, the covenant of grace, the covenant that Christ Jesus came to fulfill. And in that, what does he declare? He declares, I will be your God, you will be my people. He says, this relationship is what I establish. I make you my people by my choice. They are his own possession. They are his own children. They are his own people. I will be your God. You will be my people. We see this in Genesis 12 through 17. And then he promises Abraham heirs. You're going to have a people that come after you. That felt impossible at the time. But we begin to see this image that God can resurrect from the dead. Even a dead womb he can resurrect. So he promises a people. And then he promises a land. He promises the land of Canaan to them. But here's the problem. We have this thing called the Egyptian slavery. God promises Abraham a people, and he promises them a land, and he promises them, I will be your God, you will be my people, and all the world will be blessed through you. 
And then shortly thereafter, they find themselves in captivity, in slavery. And the question is, has God forgotten his covenants with his people? Think about it for just a moment. Imagine you are an Israelite living in the captivity of Egypt. What is the question that is on your mind? Has God forgotten the promises he has given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Has he forgotten us? And so the question that arises that we often don't see in the Old Testament is, has God forgotten his covenant? And is he therefore declared unrighteous? But what do we see in the the pivotal moment of the Old Testament? The moment that forms the people of God. The moment that Paul weaves all throughout the book of Romans, if you have eyes to see it. In the Exodus, what do we see? We see the righteousness of God revealed. Because God declares, I have not forgotten my people. I have seen your suffering. My covenant has not evaporated. And rather, I am coming to save you. And the Exodus is this declaration that God is righteous. That God has remembered his covenants to his people. He has seen their affliction and he will come to their rescue. And then we see all these great events where he sends these plagues upon the Egyptians. He delivers the Israelites through the grave of the Red Sea into resurrection life on the other side as he carries them forward to his further promise of a promised land. Now in Exodus chapter 3, when God breaks onto the scene and declares to Moses that he hasn't forgotten his people, we see the image of the righteousness of God woven all throughout. Look at Exodus 3 with me. If you have your Bibles, it's really, to- really close to the front. Turn there with me. If you read the book of Romans, you should always have the book of Exodus like your finger also in the book of Exodus. Because Romans has so much Exodus imagery all throughout it. But let's look here. Exodus 3, 7 through 8, and then 15 through 17. And what you're going to see is the declaration of the righteousness of God. I have seen my people. I have remembered my covenants. I am your God. You are my people, and I'm going to lead you to a promised land. Here's what he says. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God also said to Moses, say this, this this is verse 15, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. What do we see here? 
we see Yahweh announcing his covenantal faithfulness and therefore announcing his righteousness to his people. That's, that's, that's for later. Um, now, what, what was I saying there? Okay, yeah, his de- declaration of his righteousness to his people. Also, what we see, why I chose that passage to reveal this, is whenever God names himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's him naming himself his covenantal name, right? I'm the one that covenanted with these people. And then he talks about leading them to the land. What is he saying here? My covenant is still in effect, and I haven't forgotten you. Now, what do we see in the far greater revelation of the righteousness of God? Christ Jesus himself is the righteousness of God revealed to us. And what does he reveal? He reveals that I have seen you in your affliction, in your suffering. I have seen you in the slavery of sin. I have seen you in the far greater Egyptian captivity, the captivity to the devil, flesh, and the world, and I have come to your rescue. The righteousness of God is the revelation that our God doesn't forget us. But the temptation of every human heart is what? To believe that somehow or another, he will abandon us. To believe that somehow or another he's going to get distracted with running the world or distracted with children that he likes better or he's just so fed up with our sinfulness that he's just going to completely forget the covenant he had with us. And the revelation of Christ Jesus is the proclamation, I have not forgotten my people and I have come to their rescue. Every week, what do we do at the Eucharist? Do you know what it is every week? It's a covenant renewal ceremony. In the Old Testament, you would have these occasional moments where Israel would renew the covenant with Yahweh. And it would be a proclamation, God, we remember you. And today, we are assured that you remember us. And the reason why we celebrate the Eucharist every single week is because we are prone to forget We are prone to believe that somehow or another, maybe, just maybe, God's forgotten entirely about me. And in the visible word of this sacrament, what does Jesus preach to us week in and week out? My body was broken for you. How could I ever forget you? My blood was poured out on your behalf, to paint over the doorpost of your soul, that judgment might pass over you, how could I let you slip through my fingers? You cannot slip through the hands of the hands that were pierced for your transgressions. Week in and week out, when we celebrate the Eucharist, it is the proclamation of the righteousness of God that he has not and will not forget his people. And my question for you is, where are you tempted to believe a lie that God has forgotten you? Where are you tempted to believe the lie that somehow or another you've reached a breaking point and he's just gotten so fed up with you, he's abandoned you? We have the assurance of faith that those who are in Christ Jesus, he will not cast out. If he cannot forget himself, he cannot forget you. 
The covenants that he has made with you are eternal because the word of God is sure and the promise he makes to you, he will fulfill. And every week when we celebrate the Eucharist, what we remember is that God is sure in his promises to us. That Christ Jesus died for us, rose for us to bring us into life and nothing can remove us from that truth. The first thing we see in the righteousness of God is the revelation that our God has not forgotten us. But let's also remember that in the New Testament in particular, we see that the righteousness of God is the revelation of God's saving activity for us. The righteousness of God is the revelation that Christ Jesus makes us righteous. It reveals his power It reveals his ability. It reveals his work within us to make us lovely, not by our works, but purely as an act of grace. If you study the Reformation, even for a minute, you'll you'll learn something. Martin Luther uh, was terrified of the righteousness of God. He even confesses he hated the righteousness of God. Because he interpreted these passages, along with the medieval church, contra to St. Augustine, to believe that the righteousness of God is the eschatological righteousness of God. That means the judgment he will enact upon the earth when he returns, the judgment day. And Paul understood, I either sit under the righteousness of God, meaning his judgment, if I've done what is pleasing in his sight, or I stand under his judgment Uh, or or I understand under his approval if I've done enough of what is good. And the Apostle Paul understood, I'm never going to get it. I'm never going to get it right. I'm never going to do enough. The righteousness of God will always be a terror to me. But then he picked up St. Augustine, and St. Augustine opened up the book of Romans to him to show him, I think, the true reading of this text, I know the true reading of this text, that the righteousness of God in this context is revealing his righteous-making work, his work to take those who are unrighteous by their own works and to make them righteous by an alien work, an external righteousness, the righteousness of Christ Jesus that is given to them not because of what they do, but purely as an act of grace. Now, Romans 1.16 points at this, but Romans 3.21 through 26 make this even more clear. So if you would, turn with me there quickly. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest, meaning revealed, apart from the law. Now, next week we're going to get into that because that is striking. A Jewish mind, you can only have righteousness through the law. Because it means law-keeping, but he's saying it's apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, and there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or an appeasement by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier 
of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, in order to understand the reality that God makes us righteous, I think we need to look at a different reformer to help us here. John Calvin is helpful on this point because he carefully distinguishes between the passive obedience of Christ and the active obedience of Christ, or the passive righteousness of Christ and the active righteousness of Christ. The passive righteousness of Christ is a revelation that Christ Jesus, on our behalf, went to the cross. Philippians chapter 2 says that he was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so often what we talk about is that Christ Jesus makes us righteous because he takes all of our sins upon himself, all of our just punishment upon himself, and he nails it to a tree in our place. Now, this is significant because you and I can't be declared righteous or good or just if we have all the sin that we have. I know in my own life, I am not righteous. In my own power, in my own strength, I am not a law keeper. And so in order to be declared good, something or someone must take away from me all that which is unrighteous. And what we see in the work of Christ Jesus for us is all that is ours becomes his and he nails it to a tree, taking our full punishment upon himself. Now, I remember for years, I thought, well, how does that still make me righteous? And we'll get to that in just a second. But think about it like this. There's a bunch of lawyers in this room, right? If you get brought into court because of some transgression within you, and the judge says, that transgression's not in you, What does that mean? You are declared innocent. Does that mean, and we're going to get to a minute, that you're innocent of everything? No. But it means that in that situation, you are declared there is no guilt in this person. And what we see in the work of Christ Jesus, the passive obedience of Christ to make us righteous, is everything that makes us unrighteous has to be removed. And the gift of the atonement, the gift of Christ Jesus for us, why the cross is so central. We always want to get rid of the cross. We always want to move straight to the resurrection. I just want to talk about the life. But there is no life outside of the removal of that which brings death. And what we see on the cross of Calvary is that Christ Jesus takes everything from you that disqualifies you from God and carries it onto his own shoulders. We see this in verses 24 and 25 from chapter 3, and look for the Exodus imagery here. Again, you always need to be reading Exodus as you read Romans. Look what it says, that we are justified, meaning made righteous, justified means made righteous, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, meaning an appeasement to God by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. What needed to happen for Israel 
to be resurrected through the Red Sea? What needed to happen for Israel to receive the promised land? There was a Passover event. There was a death event. And in order for the angel of death to pass over the households of Israel, what needed to happen? A lamb was slain and painted over the doorpost so that the angel of death might pass over. And what we see in Christ Jesus is the far greater event of the Passover. That on the doorpost of this soul, death has already visited. On the doorpost of this soul, judgment has already fallen. There is no judgment that awaits you that you must fear because judgment has already come upon you in Christ Jesus. And the hardest thing for us to believe as Christians, and I've shared this before, I can believe, I really can believe in the resurrection. That's not that hard for me. I can believe that God is triune. I think that's awesome. If God is God, then surely he should blow our minds when he reveals himself to us. But in the day-to-day reality where I lack faith is the belief that the sins I can't forget God can no longer remember in Christ Jesus. That judgment has truly been removed from me and has truly been removed from you. To truly believe that God doesn't think about me the way that I think about me. That when he invites you up to receive the Holy Supper, he doesn't invite you to hang your head in guilt but to walk forward in joy and confidence because he's removed your guilt from you. The hardest thing in the Christian life to believe is that Christ Jesus has truly justified us. But he has. And the second thing that we see, the second image of what God has done for us is the active obedience of Christ that he has not merely removed that which is unlovely from us. That's where I got hung up for years. That just means that God doesn't see me as ugly anymore, but does he see me as good? Does he see me as beautiful? This is what we need to remember, that he is not only just, but he is the justifier. He is not only the one who is just in himself, righteous in himself, but he is the one who makes us righteous through our union with him. This is what the active obedience of Christ reveals, that all of Christ's life was lived for you. We talk about the substitutionary atonement, right? Christ died as our substitute. What we don't think about enough is that Christ lived as your substitute, that he sanctified your teenage years for you, that he sanctified poopy diapers for you that he sanctified being in a family for you, that he lived every moment of his life in absolute obedience, righteousness, and a posture of love, and that we are actually resurrected into a united life with him. This is what Paul talks about being clothed with Christ, hidden in Christ, in Christ, 
with Christ. He has all of these images, these words where he is driving at a truth that his hands just can't grasp because our minds can't grasp the reality that when we put our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit truly unites us to him so that when the Father looks upon you, he truly sees you and he sees Jesus. Your fundamental testimony is revealed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is your story if you are in Christ Jesus. And therefore, all that is good, all that is holy, all that is perfect within you is because Christ gives it to you as a gift. Romans 3.26 says, It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, meaning the one who is righteous in himself, and the justifier, meaning the one who makes us righteous of the one who has faith in Jesus. But you still might be saying, and I struggled with this for years too, it's still a whole bunch of legal terms. I still want to know God as Father. Why is it that there's all these legal terms? Well, I actually shared this illustration in my first sermon I gave on a Sunday morning. I think I was 25 at Wellspring. And I think that day God said, this is just going to be your sermon forever. Um, so some of you might leave me because you get tired of hearing it. I won't blame you. Um, but here it is again. Uh, I was 21, I think, living in Yellowstone National Park. It's where my wife and I met. We were working up there. And my parents came to visit me. And my parents were going through this really incredible time in their life where they were finally empty nesters and uh, they seemed to really like each other. Um, you know, maybe some of you have experienced that when you become empty nesters. Kids are out of the house, we can fall back in love. And my dad and I went on a hike. And my dad's a pretty stoic guy. He's an architect. Um, and so we didn't talk a whole lot growing up. Uh, but we were on a hike and it was my favorite hike in Yellowstone National Park. It's called Avalanche Peak. It's steep, it's short, so you get it over with, but you're really breathing heavy by the time you get up. But it's right above Lake Yellowstone. You can see the Tetons in the distance. You can see Mount Sherman to the north. It's just beautiful. And I remember on the hike, my dad started opening up to me for the first time in our lives, at least the first time I could ever remember. And he said something. He said, son, your mother and I are proud of you. And two things happened. One... I realized I'd never heard that in my life. Now, he might have said it before, and I'm sure he did. He's a good dad, but I never heard it. I never internalized it. It was the first time in my life I'd ever heard those words spoken. And then I realized my whole life, that's all I ever wanted to hear. But I didn't know it until then. And I think so much of our lives... We, are, we spend striving for the approval of the one we long to be approved by. And in Christ Jesus, the Father can look upon us and say, I'm proud of you. The Father can look upon you and say, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. This is what we are celebrating when we're going to baptize Abigail in a moment that we are baptizing her into this story, the love and approval of God, not established because of our striving, 
not insecure, which is what the works of the law does. The works of the law says, I will only be approved of if I meet dad's standards. But the gospel of grace says, my older brother, Christ Jesus, met them for me. And now the approval of God rests upon me and can never be taken away. This is the righteousness of God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the word that we must always remember. That the righteousness of God reveals to us that our God remembers us. And the righteousness of God reveals that our God has justified us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that this word, this news is not just for us, but it's for the whole world. Lord, would this news sink into our hearts? Would it be upon our lips to proclaim this news to our neighbors that are lost and far from you? Lord, would we continue to support our missions partners, our church planters, our global missions partners as they preach this gospel to a lost and a broken world that we can be reunited with you through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.